0: Welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Voting in the 2022 general election begins October 12th. To help you prepare, we're focusing on state and local candidates, as well as ballot measures. There are two candidates on the November 8th ballot running for San Diego County Supervisor District 4, which includes Claremont, Linda Vista, Hillcrest, North Park, La Mesa, Lemon Grove, and many communities in between. Democratic incumbent supervisor and educator Nathan Fletcher is challenged by Republican small business owner Amy Reichert. Both candidates met with the Union Tribune editorial board ahead of the election. Here's the first 20 or so minutes of each of their interviews. To hear the full conversation, go online to SanDiegoUnionTribune.com slash election 2022. Thanks for listening.
1: Okay, today the San Diego Union Tribune, uh, Tribune Editorial Board is joined by the Chair of the County Board of Supervisors, Nathan Fletcher, who's seeking re-election. Um, thanks so much for joining us today.
2: Yeah, thank you all for having me. I appreciate it.
1: I actually want to start with um, another uh, uh, campaign. I know you and I have talked about this before, but I wanted to ask you in this setting about your endorsement for Kelly Martinez, sure. um, which you know some see as an embrace of the status quo and it seems you know i'm sure you know you know you're plugged into this issue as much as anyone the rate of inmate deaths which has always been disproportionately high in san Diego county jails is higher since gore's since gore since gore left in in february which doesn't speak well for the folks who are still there obviously each situation is different but collectively paints a really troubling picture so i guess my question for you is what did you see in, in kelly martinez that you decided to endorse her so early and um, what, was that the right call, given everything that's transpired since you made that endorsement?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one, it, I, I think it's it's patently unfair to ascribe frustration with Bill Gore onto someone who who worked there. Um, I, you know, they are two fundamentally different people. And Kelly Martinez has not been the sheriff uh, for the last decade. And uh, she's been in the sheriff's department. But she hasn't been the sheriff. And, and, you know, Matt, I think my experience uh, dealing with Bill Gore in the jails and my experience dealing with Kelly Martinez when she was in a position to do things, demonstrated their fundamentally different approach, and I think provides all the justification for why I think she's the person who should be the next sheriff. You'll remember it was several years ago, Bill Gore and I had a significant public fight. Uh, We did dueling op-eds in in your paper uh, around this issue of how how we tackle the issue of correctional health. And Bill Gore wanted to outsource it all to for-profit entities, the same entities who briefed their investors that lowering recidivism was a threat to their business model, The same entities whose business model is predicated on getting a capitated rate of X amount per inmate per day, and then the financial incentive to pay back their shareholders is to deny them care and services because that increases their profit margin. It's a a model that's fundamentally broken. And we lost years of progress because Bill Gore refused to sit down and say there is a better way that we can handle the health care, the mental health, the substance abuse treatment, and the physical health. Uh, of folks who were who were in our custody. Uh, That played out Bill Gore ended up having some problems with his outsourcing because he didn't follow meet and confer type laws. And then he put Kelly there to say, okay, whatever, do figure out a different way. And Kelly came in and we worked out a different way. You know, we moved forward with a massive expansion of social workers in our jails, of drug and alcohol treatment clinicians in our jails. The sheriff's department under Kelly pushing and prodding when she got in a position to have some authority there, actually got them to move forward on medication for addiction treatment. They put in place a whole series of, of, of efforts to lower the suicide risk in our jail. Now, none of those things are going to gonna be implemented overnight. You don't take a jail that's got a 40 or 50 year kind of legacy problem and change it overnight. But Kelly is the one who actually came forward and stepped forward and was able to get those changes Uh, put in place. Now, we remain very concerned about the situation we face. Now, I would say, Matt, that the the largest number of deaths previously was suicides. Uh, Those numbers have come down dramatically. But as those came down dramatically, we've seen a rise in fentanyl that is not just impacting San Diego County jails, but jails all the way across this country. And now we're taking action to try and get that under control. We've had to, per the state auditor, right? State auditor said you have a physical infrastructure in your jails that creates a problem. And so we are investing in new facilities, not to increase the, the number of cells, but to increase these jails. were not designed to provide healthcare services. They weren't designed to provide mental health and drug treatment services. Uh, I think you'll see us in the coming months really explore investing in correctional health uh, in a way where, where folks can 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 be provided better treatment and outcomes. Um, but you know, I thought Kelly was was the was the best uh, available choice uh, that we had, and i I you know I stand by my endorsement of her. Um, elections are a choice. It's a choice between available candidates who are there. Uh, And I think as we sit here today, I think Kelly is clearly the best choice um, as we move forward. But again, you know, it's not fair, you know, some of y'all were around when Doug Manchester ran the UT. I don't think you're all Doug Manchester. You know, it's not fair to ascribe an individual who works in an entity for everything that that person did. Kelly's approach on the jails has been fundamentally different. Uh, and, and she has been willing to engage and work, and, and we meet regularly and we work through these issues. Um, and so I, I think she is the, the, the best candidate we have for sheriff and, and uh, I'm proud to support her.
1: Quick quick follow-up question on that. What will your relationship be with whoever the sheriff is? Yeah. Next, you're going into budget season, right? Traditionally, the supervisors have had deference to the sheriffs, which obviously is an elected official, yeah. it has their own budgetary powers. But a problem is a problem, and we saw you take some action fairly recently to yeah. say we need to do some different things. So we're going to try to have some solutions, and that was, yeah. you know, led by me and others as the supervisors taking more of a heavy-handed role. Was that a one-off, or
2: do you envision that
3: well, being
1: more big-footed in the, in the in the years ahead, or what?
2: I mean, I'm a collaborative person. I, I'd much rather work together, uh, you know, in, in a way to try try and get the outcome. But I think what we can't do as a board is not allow things that we think are important to be addressed. Um, And so, you know, I wanted to get along with Bill Gore when he was here and I tried to get along, but you know, we had real differences on carotid restraint. We had differences on what he was doing in the jails. We had a a series of differences. And at some point you just can't sit by and watch things that, that you think need to be addressed, not be addressed. One of the things that I think is, is perhaps most uh, underreported or least known is is the, the unique nature of sheriffs in California. Uh, sheriffs have constitutional power that is embedded. Um, you know, when I thought we need to get rid of carotid restraint, I could have five votes to say get rid of carotid restraint and all I could do was encourage sheriff to do it. You can't change their policies, their procedures, their tactics. Now, you have some leverage in the budget. There is a uh, relationship that needs to exist. Um, and so I think you need to use Uh, Those situations, as we have in recent budgets and it wasn't just the action that we took uh, around fentanyl uh, around staffing, you know part of the problem in the jails is we have a staffing issue you don't want correctional deputies who are on their fourth consecutive day of mandatory overtime. Uh, That's not a good environment there there's issues around healthcare. Um, But, but I you know I think you'll see the board continue to to work to make sure that things we think are a priority um, get addressed while recognizing the sheriff gets to set their own policies and procedures. And as a board, we can weigh in, we can express our opinion, but we don't get to make those decisions. Uh, But I think the budget will continue to be a place as we have in recent years, uh, where the board exercises what it thinks the priorities need to be um, and where they need to go. And, And we're certainly gonna continue to do that. But Matt, I will tell you, it is much better if you have a partner in the sheriff's department who wants to work with you. Right, instead of of me and Bill Gore yelling at each other forever about fundamentally different models, Kelly Martinez sits down and says, "Okay, how do we do this? How do we create correctional health? How do we invest uh, in getting the best outcomes? You know, how do we do it?" Um, and that's that's what I've seen, and that's certainly what what I would expect um, from uh, from Kelly Martinez if she's elected to her own term.
3: Thanks. Just to a very related question having to do with uh, 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 the role of Democrats deciding that Kelly Martinez was a good candidate to, to bring up. In 2009, Sheriff Colander essentially picked Bill Gore to replace him. In 2016 or 17, Bonnie Demanis essentially picked Summer Stefan to replace her. And so this isn't quite as cut and dried. But when you have this spectacle of Democrats behind the scenes uh, convincing Kelly Martinez to switch her party, And to run for office when she heretofore had not seemed to have much political aspirations at all. It gets to the issues raised in 2009 and 2016 about people behind the scenes kind of manipulating the process and not in an open way. And I get what your point is about having concerns about uh, about Gore for sure. But why wouldn't Democrats be open about the reservations about Dave Myers Juan Vargas told me on the record that there was essentially a, a group of Democrats who worked to put forward a different candidate because they just didn't trust Dave Meyer. But why want, why wouldn't people just be open about that instead of the subterfuge? Because it did feel like subterfuge and still feels like subterfuge, given Kelly Martinez's lack of political ambition before she was encouraged to run by a group of powerful people.
2: Well, one, Chris, I I fundamentally disagree with the premise of your point, right? And and, and you acknowledge it's not the same as what happened in the past, but to put it in the same breath is fundamentally different. The board appointed into the position who they wanted to win the race. That gave a massive and significant incumbent advantage to them. We had the opportunity to do that. We had the votes to do that. But I didn't believe as chair that that was the right thing to do because I didn't think it was right when they did it for Gore after Collender. I didn't think it was right when they did it for summer after DeManus. And I said, I'm not going to be a part of continuing that legacy. So it is important and worth putting an exclamation point that the comparison to what happened before is fundamentally different. Now, let's go to the second part of your question. All of us endorsing Kelly Martinez is a statement of the contrast between the Democratic candidates who were available. So I think we made a pretty clear statement about who we had trust and faith in to do the job and who we did not by the action that we took in endorsing. Now, I never had a conversation with Kelly Martinez where I told her to re-register or change her party or do any of that. She was a potential candidate who had joined the Democratic Party, who I had worked with on a series of things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with the elect- Honestly, if supervisors did not endorse in a sheriff's race, I think that would be a problem. Because we are so invested in the outcome of what happens there. I think we owe it to the public to tell them who we think would be best out of the available candidates and why we think that person would be best. Now, if you want me to run around and just drag other people who are running for office and well, then some people choose to do that. I chose to express my support for Kelly with an understanding of who the candidates were. Uh, I was not shy or bashful in my support of her. Uh, I, you know, acknowledge she's not a, a, a professional politician who runs for office across the thing, but she is a very good person and she's very committed to having a good sheriff's department. Uh, and so I I think she, she is the best candidate. And I don't think that there's anything uh, underhanded about elected officials endorsing who they think would be the best person. Uh, and we did it very transparently. I didn't hide my endorsement. I didn't shy away from talking about her. I've never shied away from answering your questions or anyone else's questions about why I support her or why I think she would be best. So I just disagree with with the premise. I think there's a lot of history as it relates to the Sheriff's Department. I think there's a lot of history as it relates to board picking people. Uh, and I think in some ways that's clouding Uh, some of what we actually did versus what we didn't do. And I think that there is a rightful spotlight and focus on the Sheriff's Department and the situation in the jails. I think that is appropriate and that is needed. It is very critical. Uh, And the public has a right to demand and expect better from the conditions in our jail. Uh, And I'm certainly committed in my role to achieve that. and, And I know that Kelly is as well. Thanks. Yep.
4: Just one little follow-up question: There is there dialogue between you and her every single time an incident happens because they're still happening; it hasn't stopped.
2: Yeah, we we look at every every incident that comes in, and we we review everyone that comes in. And you know, Laura, they're, they're not all the same, uh, and and they're they're very different. Um, and never excusing. Look, we don't want any deaths in our jail system. At- Um, you know, you have that many folks, you know, in custody, you are going to have some things going wrong. But the conversation around each one is what could we have done that would have prevented this? You know, what different thing could be in place? uh, If we had an actual Department of Correctional Health where folks could go and stay in a secure environment and get better, would that have done a better outcome? Uh, You know, we've had challenges on uh, building out the, the workforce component. Hiring behavioral health workers is very challenging right now. Uh, hiring folks who want to do that work in the jails is very challenging right now. So we're, you know, we're working around those. But every every time that there is a death in jail, there is an assessment made and a question of is there something, was there something that should have been done that wasn't done? Or is there something that we could put in place to to try and uh, alleviate them? And, and you know, we work real really hard to try and do that
0: care courts has passed and will be rolled out locally, you know, there's some fear it's going to put more pressure on an already strained system. So my question is, is San Diego County prepared for that? And and what is the plan
2: to roll it out? Yeah, well, we're not today. Uh, Fortunately, it's not in place today. Uh, You know, we've got probably about a year, uh, Christy, before it comes in. And, you know, I I want to put care court in just a little bit of of context. Look, I think it's good. Uh, I think it's an appropriate tool. Uh, I think it is a needed tool, but I also don't want to oversell this. And I've been very clear about this from the very beginning. Care court is not going to unilaterally, singularly solve every problem that we face with folks who are unsheltered or struggling. Uh, we, I think it will primarily apply to, to some number of the folks who are suffering from schizophrenia, uh, probably most likely is where we'll see it. But we don't yet know how many referrals will be made. We don't yet know how the court uh, is going to process through or or what that will be, but at its core, Christine, I think this is the most important point. Care court is going to force a prioritization of limited resources, uh, and I was very clear in conversations with the, with the governor and legislators and others, you know, we have a shortage of available services today for, for behavioral health. Now, what we're doing is making a prioritization to say these folks are going to be the highest priority, but until we can implement all the things we're doing around workforce and building out of services, there will be a little bit of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Uh, now, we prioritize on a daily basis. There's almost no issue I face on a daily basis where I have a surplus of resources to tackle a problem. There's usually some scarcity. And so I think it's, it's an appropriate step uh, that we can take. And I think we need the pressure. You know, for folks who come out and say, well, we're going to be overburdened, well, what is the option? The option is leaving people on the streets and not trying. And whatever we do around care court and whatever resources we dedicate to getting services in place for these folks and however many of these folks get in and get help, it will not be perfect. But will it be better than if we hadn't done it? 100%. Without a doubt, it will be better than had we not done it. Doesn't mean it'll be perfect. Doesn't mean everyone will get exactly what they need. Doesn't mean we'll do it all exactly on time. This will be a little bit of like the plane is flying and we're hurtling through the air while we're putting the wings on. Uh, but we're the only large county uh, who stepped up to say, "Hey, we'll go early." Um, and you know that makes everyone nervous and it, it causes a lot of anxiety. But I feel an obligation to the people of San Diego to say we're doing everything we can. We're making ourselves as uncomfortable as we possibly can be. We're not afraid to lean into these things. We're not afraid to go first. We're not afraid to stumble a little bit because at the end of the day, more people will get care and their lives will be better because we chose to go first, because we started making the initial investments and then a whole bunch of other counties can learn uh, from what we do and they may have a smoother time but they'll be behind the curve and and a few of those lives won't be touched. So it is gonna be a challenge. I acknowledge that it is uh, risky in embracing it and saying, we're gonna go first. Uh, But, you know, in in the the short time I'm going to be, you know, in this seat, whether it's four years or if the voters want me for four more years, I think every day about how we move with a sense of urgency. I'm not afraid to take risk. I'm not afraid to fail. I'm not afraid to try things. Uh, And this is a tool that can potentially save someone's life. And if there's one child who gets in a better condition and goes back to their family and lives a productive life, then I'm willing to take the risk uh, for it not being perfect.
1: Okay, today the San Diego Union tribune Editorial Board is joined by Amy Reichert, who is running for County Supervisor, um, challenging Nathan Fletcher for his seat in um, District 4. Um, thanks for joining us today. And, and let, let me start, you, people um, will recognize you from Reopen San Diego. Tell, tell, talk a little bit about the, the pandemic. First, kind of a broader question, um, because I know there's been, in this campaign, some discussion about what your thoughts are about the pandemic. Did you see the pandemic as a as a public health threat, I guess is the base question. And then what did you see the role of reopen San Diego um, and your leadership in it uh, during the pandemic in those couple of years when the lockdowns were happening and, and, and um, you know, there was some political discussions about, about the pandemic and the government's approach.
4: I absolutely saw COVID as a public health threat. And of course, in the very beginning, Everything changed very quickly. I have two children. I have an older son who just graduated from San Diego State last year. So he spent his senior year of college online. And I also have a younger son who's now 11. And so he was nine at the time. And so I can remember going back to that time. I was on a Zoom for work. My husband was on a Zoom for work. And my nine year old was on a Zoom for school. It was just, a very surreal time, when things uh, I started questioning things was around June of 2020, and that is when I saw our public health officials go from going to the beach is is a danger and we needed to keep our our beaches closed. To I live in La Mesa, and I live two miles away from where three buildings were burned down. And shortly after those riots, a thousand public health officials put out a notice saying that it was okay to protest uh, for Black Lives Matter um, as far as the, the, the COVID pandemic went, but it was not okay to protest for reopening of schools or businesses. And they even went so far as to say that that was racist So for me, that was when I started questioning things, that it was okay to have a cost-benefit analysis for things like protests, but it wasn't okay to have a a cost-benefit analysis for something like burying a loved one and having a proper funeral. So with Reopen San Diego, we started as a Facebook group, and then we decided to meet in person, in a park, outdoors. And... It was just five of us in the very beginning. And honestly, uh, our kids hadn't even been around other kids for months or played with other kids. Remember at that time, playgrounds were even closed. And then we found as adults uh, having that safe place in order to connect. uh, That's really when we started questioning together about the safe reopening of schools. Why was it that private schools could be open, but public schools could not? Why was it that Walmart could be open, marijuana dispensaries, liquor stores could be open, even strip clubs could be open, but mom and pop shops couldn't. And so that's when we formed Reopen San Diego and we've taken a very moderate, middle of the road approach uh, to safe reopening. Can I ask you a follow-up question about the vaccines? Um, I know there were a lot of parents that were very skeptical about getting their children vaccinated. but I wanted to know if you had ever received a COVID vaccine, did you vaccinate your children and the people, the majority of the people in your group, I don't know if that was something you discussed with the Facebook group or when you finally met, but were they getting vaccines and were they masked when you were meeting? So uh, we were outdoors when we met initially. And back then there was a New York Times article that released CDC data. And so we knew early on in the pandemic that outdoor transmission was just not a thing. And so wearing masks outdoors, according to this New York Times article, and I'm happy to to find that and give you the source, that even the World Health Organization, they were never able to link any case that was from outdoor transmission. And of course, what we knew was, it was sustained face-to-face contact that uh, was uh, what really was um, something that increased somebody's exposure to COVID. I personally have never had COVID. Now, when it comes to vaccines, of course, when we founded Reopen San Diego, there wasn't even a COVID vaccine yet. We just wanted to get our kids back in school. Now, later on, uh, we did take a stance uh, for it to be a choice. We didn't think that it should be mandated. We didn't think that somebody should lose their job or their livelihood over it. Now, me personally, I have had every single vaccine and so have my children. Uh, they've been fully vaccinated. When it came to the COVID vaccine, I just took a very practical uh stance. Maybe you would even put me in the camp of vaccine hesitant I had questions. I'm a state licensed private investigator. I've been an investigator in California since 1999. And so one of the things that I really wanted to know before taking it was to see some long-term studies and for me to do my own cost benefit analysis. And we can all go back to that time initially when They were saying if you get the vaccine you you can't you won't be able to get it and you won't transmit it my opponent even tweeted that my opponent said uh, the vaccine has a 99.9 percent efficiency rate efficacy rate and then he just said so go get the vaccine well As an investigator, I found that number a little bit exaggerated, and I also just wanted to see some long-term data. So just so you know, I'm 54 years old, and when I looked at my cost-benefit analysis, I realized that if I got COVID-19, that I would, according to statistics, I would be fine. Also, I knew that, and of course, this is now something everybody knows, as the CDC announced this year, that COVID, that the vaccine does not prevent infection, nor does it stop transmission. And so it was a personal choice for me. And it's sad to say how much uh, people who merely had questions uh, were made out to be the villains. Uh, We were called all kinds of horrible names by my opponent, specifically, we were called murderers. We were called unpatriotic. And now with the latest CDC guidelines released August 11th, it's really clear when they just said, now the vaccinated must be treated the same as the unvaccinated. And so that's all we ever asked for from the beginning was to be treated the same. And that's my viewpoint. So Amy, just to be clear, you said you you and your children were vaccinated, but you're talking about different vaccines. So you've never been vaccinated for COVID nor your children. I just wanna make that clear. Yes, and I'm gonna say something controversial. Uh, it's really gonna be a stretch for me to accept that what uh, Moderna call a vaccine in history. Have you ever had to take four shots for something in less than a year and a half and then when you still get the virus you have to go on a powerful antiviral still that's hardly a vaccine
1: well with the vaccine has been shown to uh, dramatically reduce um, hospitalizations and deaths so the science that is, is sound on that is simply not point.
4: true that is not true in the county and i'd be happy to provide you with the latest county data for example if you can look back over the past couple months um, and they will report every month so they'll pre- they'll actually present they'll say 15 people in San Diego County died from or with covid and then they will report that 11 of those people were fully vaccinated fully vaccinated also what we don't know is how many people did get the vaccine, then they got COVID, and then they received monoclonal antibodies or Paxlovid. How can we really say with certainty that the vaccine dramatically reduced hospitalizations and deaths? As we know, our own president, Joe Biden said, if you get the vaccine, you won't go to the hospital or die. Well, that claim was obviously not true. And people, sadly, got fully vaccinated and they still went to the hospital and in many cases still died. So I'm going to have to be skeptical on that, Matthew.
1: Well, just to push back on that, I mean, the the situation now is entirely different than it was a year ago. Now, very few people are um, getting hospitalized or died. Some of those, yes, are people who were vaccinated or even who got boosted. But as we're just seeing now, because there's a new booster um, that's designed uh, uh, to offer greater protections, that immunity was waning. Right? I mean, if you if you believe in the science, the science is 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 pretty clear. Are there exceptions to to it? And as in some cases, as you're saying, sure. But we're at a different stage of the pandemic. Um, and, and what do the vaccination. What do
4: you mean if you believe the science? Because right now, um, so reopen San Diego just asked a physician, an MD to testify to the San Diego City Council. Because right now, uh, throughout uh, in the city, in the county, and the state, there's still a state of emergency over, over COVID. And what our medical doctor was able to present was actually what we're starting to see with the COVID-19 vaccine. And I don't want to make this interview all about that because that's not what my campaign is about. I have merely from the very beginning stated that I am a, a free woman and that my livelihood should not be threatened. My job should not be threatened. The government should not be forced to make me take something because they say that it's i will be less likely to go to the hospital that's not a reason for mandating something ever and that is exactly the position that people have taken and that is not a correct position to take so
1: well but the history just to, uh, the history of the united states mandating vaccines dates back to 1905 in a massachusetts case that was settled by the supreme court so this isn't a new occurrence in a public health disaster there's
4: Okay the well then show me happen. show me a job uh, here uh where you have to be uh, vaccinated for the flu show me a job here uh where you have to be uh vaccinated in order to hold the job why only this vaccine i find it hard to believe that uh there weren't economic factors uh behind uh mandating this but, particular vaccine
3: admissions carry vaccine requirements. And if you take the stand that if public medicine has made a mistake in the past, then everything they say going forward is circumspect. How can you not reject public medicine entirely until the 19th century physicians believed that bleeding people that that but for God's
4: sake, I'm going to stop you right there. Because that please do not do that. Please do not uh, take a, a position that I'm taking that's very middle of the road where I'm asking and then claim that I don't trust medicine at all. It, when you use the scientific method, it is healthy to ask questions. There is nothing wrong with asking questions. We should welcome questions. In fact, what you just did there, I'm sorry, but that that was taking it to an extreme. And i I reject that kind of dialogue. And what you were trying to do there was trying to stop me from expressing a, what is a very natural question to ask, and whether I should or should not take a drug if it's likely to keep me out of the hospital or not. So, do
3: you, do you think that COVID vaccine, COVID vaccines, do not decrease the risk of hospitalization and death?
4: I would say that they have not been what they are advertised, and I would encourage you today after my after this Zoom call, to please take a look at the county data and you will see that right now, more people in San Diego County are dying from COVID who are fully vaccinated.
3: I asked you a point by question about whether or not you think vaccines increase protection from serious complications and you immediately said, well, they were wrong about this before. Well, that was my previous question that you rejected the premise of. If you say that because people got something wrong, you can't subsequently trust what they say. There is a long history of the scientific method establishing things that work and don't work and don't work. So, unless you believe there's a global conspiracy, the World Health stats show that the percentage of COVID deaths are overwhelmingly more likely in first world countries than they are. I mean, third world countries than first world countries. So, in the okay, country,
4: I'm going to I'm going to stop you right there. The very fact that you used conspiracy in your line of questioning with me is insulting. And so I'm just going to state it again. I answered your question earlier. Unless and until we can conclusively see that vaccines and vaccines alone were responsible for keeping people out of the hospital and dying, instead of just monoclonal antibodies and Paxlovid, I'll be happy to continue that conversation with you. I think that is a good question to ask. They said, if you take the vaccine, you won't go to the hospital or die. And then people started going to the hospital and dying. And so there then became a treatment available called monoclonal antibodies, which was made available for free through San Diego County. And monoclonal antibodies, if taken in the beginning as an early treatment, and this is data from the county said that the monoclonal antibodies reduced your risk of going to the hospital by 90%. So unless you can show me actual studies where people took the vaccine, but they didn't take monoclonal antibodies or didn't take Paxlovid, we can continue this conversation. But right now that data is not there and no one can tell me that vaccines and vaccines alone, were responsible for reducing hospitalizations and death when someone who is high risk despite being fully vaccinated has to have a powerful antiviral or an intravenous monoclonal antibody treatment. I think that's a fair question. Just,
1: but just, one last, one last just question to be on fair, this. go ahead Andrew. Just to be clear, the numbers from the CDC show that the people who are primary vaccinated and get two boosters, their death rate for 100,000 people is less than 0.4%. For unvaccinated, it's almost
0: 7%. Seven.
4: So in so- the county, we don't have data for unvaccinated. We've asked the county repeatedly. The only way that the county will present the data at the Board of Supervisors is they will show fully vaccinated and not fully vaccinated. We do not have local dated data for people who are just unvaccinated.
0: Thanks again for listening to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. For more election coverage, go to SanDiegoUnionTribune.com election 2022. Thanks for listening.